0: Please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God this morning, reading from Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, continuing in our series, Follow Me. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your thoughts, in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word, for its instructions, for its for its guidance. Help us, Father, to submit our hearts and minds and thoughts to it as uh, we prepare for the uh, for um, this message. God, help us to submit to your word as it is instruction for life and, and guides us uh, and helps us to know the purposes that you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today, once again,
1: we are continuing in our series that we have been in for a few weeks now, uh, a series that is based on the words of Jesus Christ, a series that we're calling uh, Follow Me. It's really a series of going through Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10. And uh, as we follow Jesus, here now in Matthew chapter 9, we come to, again, another miracle and another display of Jesus' authority to rule over all things in this world. You know, as I travel the uh, roads and highways in our city here, and even when you go on vacation, you travel the highways to wherever you're going, uh, I have to admit I'm rather glad, I'm even thankful, that we have road signs to uh, help bring order to what would otherwise be chaos, uh, to even help bring safety on our roads. Uh, And I say that in contrast to I have driven in other parts of the world that don't necessarily have road signs. And uh, if they do, they're ignored, they're not followed, they're not read, and it is chaotic. Uh, But most people here in America, they uh, follow the road signs established on our highways and roads. And most people understand the difference between what merge means and what yield means. I'm thankful for that. Um, Most people know what. A stop sign means, even if they only slow down enough to see if another car is approaching, and then they accelerate through it or kind of roll through it. How many roll through stop signs? Yeah, okay. Most people even understand our, our nonverbal symbols, such as traffic lights. Think about it. There's even there's no, no words on it. There's no letters on it. It's just red, green, and yellow. And all over, people universally understand that. They... They understand a green light means go. A red light means, and a yellow light means, absolutely go faster. I knew you guys would get that. But I must admit, there's one sign that I saw this last week that just blew me away. As I'm driving down the road, I look up and I see at Quick Trip 290 nine how many saw that sign how many of you ever thought you would ever see that sign again amazing isn't it but what happens when people fail to read the road signs yes chaos accidents happen cars crash and people can even get hurt but road signs are not the only signs that people fail to read in this miracle story Here in the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, again, he presents clear signs that show who he is as the Son of God, who he is as the King, and even what he can do as the Son of God, what he does as the King of Kings. But many of the witnesses in this particular story miss the sign that Jesus gives them. They failed to see it, they failed to read it. Through this miracle of forgiveness and healing, Jesus is once again showing us his absolute authority in the world. In Matthew chapter 8, we've already seen that Jesus has authority over sickness when he heals those who are sick. We see that Jesus has authority over storms when he calms the seas and the waves. And now we come to Matthew 9, and Jesus is going to show us another sign of his authority. In a sense, Jesus is going to answer the question every one of us must answer sooner or later in life. And that question is who is this man? And what we see in this particular story here is Jesus has authority over sin. Matthew continues the theme of Jesus' authority in Matthew 9, except now, as we begin this chapter, Matthew's going to address the real issue, the real problem at hand for us as humans, as a a society, if you will. So far in Matthew 8, Jesus has demonstrated his authority over disease, he's demonstrated his authority over disasters. In last Sunday, we saw that he demonstrated his authority even over the demons. And as important as that is, it's still only on the surface. Jesus has still not gotten below the surface to the real problems yet, to the real issue at hand yet. But all that is about to change here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, where we see the real issue is addressed, an issue that is far more serious than any tumor that shows up on a CT scan. An issue that is far more serious than any storm that shows up in your life. And that issue is sin. When it comes to the issue of sin, what we see in this particular story, what Jesus shows us here, is that he has authority over sin. Jesus makes this clear by his words, and even by his works, First, Jesus says in Matthew 9, 2, look at it in your notes there. He says, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Is that not glorious? What what an amazing miracle, what a blessing to hear those words. And then Jesus demonstrates his authority over sin later on in verse 6 when he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now this is astonishing Because then he says to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And so what Jesus says to this young man, what Jesus does for him, should kind of make all of us here at this room kind of sit up and take notice. I hope you don't gloss over this particular story here. This particular miracle. This, what we see today, what we come to today, this should make us stop and ask ourselves, man, who is this man we've been looking at, we've been studying? And who is he to me personally? So let's answer this life-changing question, if you will. Who is this man? Notice the setting. The setting here, number one, Jesus ministers with authority. Notice how Matthew sets the scene for this story in verse 1. Look in your Bibles here. It says, So he got into a boat, speaking of Jesus. He crossed over, that is the Sea of Galilee, and he came to his own city. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you may remember that Jesus had briefly ventured into Gentile territory, which, by the way, uh, gives, tells us why there were pigs in the region. Um, Jews, as you know, were kosher, didn't have anything to do with the pigs. This is Gentile territory with which Jesus ventured into. And in, in that region, last Sunday, you may remember, he delivered two men who were controlled by demons. But the townspeople were just a little put off by this, to say the least, because they valued the consumption of their pigs over the restoration of two men. And so they begged Jesus to leave, which is mind-blowing in and of itself. Here's the one, the king of kings, the son of God in front of them, leave. Think about that. And that's when Jesus and his disciples get back into their boat, and they head back across the Sea of Galilee to the town of Capernaum. Matthew calls it, it's interesting. He says it's it's his own city. And the reason Matthew says that is because his own city here, Capernaum, was basically the base of operations, the launching pad, if you will, for Jesus' ministry into the area of Galilee here. Luke tells us in the parallel story that this particular story, this particular miracle that we're looking at, happened in a crowded house. This house was probably had one central room with a, a flat roof and an outside stairway to the, top, to the rooftop. The roof maybe would have been made of thatch and the tiles laid over thick wooden beams. And in Matthew, and not, I'm sorry, but in Mark and Luke, the stories that they tell of the same occurrence, uh, the house was crowded with people, full of people, including Jesus, who is now teaching the people, and he's healing the sick. And so there were also the Pharisees and scribes. You can kind of think of these guys as the professional. Uh, teachers of the law, and they have come from all over the region of Galilee to this particular house to kind of check out this man. They themselves are, are kind of wanting to answer the question, who is this man? Because they've heard about him. They've heard his stories. They've heard about his fame and the healings that he's performed and how he teaches with authority. And so they themselves, teachers of the law, professional teachers of the law, we've got to go see who this is. And so they're there in this crowded house. So picture the scene with me, if you will. Jesus commands center stage in this house. As he now teaches with authority, he's now healing with authority. In fact, Luke chapter 5, verse 17 says, The power of the Lord was present for him to heal. And so this room is crowded with eager listeners who are kind of leaning forward to catch every word that Jesus says. The Pharisees and scribes sit silently, perhaps along the walls of the house, just waiting for Jesus to make a mistake so they can accuse him, so they can point it out to him. When suddenly, Matthew tells us in verse 2, look at it, then behold, in other words, take notice of this, This is unusual. This is sudden. This doesn't just happen all the time. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. We know from Mark's account and Luke's account of the same story that four friends bring this paralytic to Jesus to be healed. Now these are the kind of friends I love to have. They want to help their paralyzed friend. And let me tell you, they're ready to burst through every obstacle that stands in their way to bring their friend to Jesus. Listen to how Mark describes their persistence in Mark 2, verses 3 through 4. It says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening in the roof, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, you just got to imagine that. Imagine they're on the roof here. And all of a sudden, they, they kind of dig a hole in our roof. They, they part the roof a little bit, just big enough to where they can now lower him. And I'm thinking they probably tied ropes on the mat on his bed, and four of them on each end, and they just lower him. And can you imagine if that just came through right now? Would that not catch your attention? Everything would be focused on who? On what? Yeah, all eyes would be right here. And I'm sure that's what was taking place in this story, in this particular house that's filled with people who are interested and curious about Jesus, along with the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, just pause here for a moment. Let me ask a question. Why did these four guys want their friend to meet Jesus? Yeah. They wanted their friend to be healed by Jesus. I mean, the word on the street was that this guy heals lepers. He heals the sick. And so certainly in their thinking, they're saying to themselves, man, if we could just get him to Jesus, Jesus can heal him too. These four guys believed so much that Jesus was the answer to their friend's problem that they went to extreme measures to get him to Jesus. Jesus. Once the paralytic is lowered on his mat in front of Jesus, a hush falls on the room. What will Jesus do now? What do you suppose these four friends thought Jesus would do? What did they want Jesus to do? In fact, what did everyone in the house that day think Jesus would do? Listen, Make no mistake about it, everyone in that house that day thought Jesus would heal the paralytic, but Jesus goes against public opinion here one more time, and he uses this instance, he uses this as an opportunity to showcase his identity one more time, which brings us to the big surprise in the story. Look at it number two. Jesus forgives the paralytic sin. Notice what it says in your Bibles, Matthew 2, not Matthew 9, verse 2. It says, when Jesus saw their faith. Now, I, my particular belief, I think that's a reference to the faith of not just the four friends, but also the faith of the paralytic. In seeing their faith, Jesus turns to the paralytic and says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, This is surprising to everyone, to say the least. This was not what the paralytic expected, nor was this what his friends expected, and it certainly was not what the religious leaders expected. Think about it. This man didn't even ask for his sins to be forgiven. And yet Jesus looks at him and says... Son, your friend, your sins are forgiven you. I try to put myself in this guy's shoes, or more appropriately, on this guy's mat. And so your friends bring you to Jesus to be healed, because after all, word has spread that Jesus has been doing all kinds of healings. And so the first thing Jesus does, he looks at you. You can't help but see this man lowered into the house. And he sees you're paralyzed. And then he says, Take heart, my son. And you're kind of gearing up for the next words. And you're thinking. And your friends are thinking. The people around you are thinking. And the scribes and Pharisees are thinking. He's, going, he, he's about to. He's about to say those words. He's about to heal this guy of his paralysis. But to everyone's surprise, Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, what's going through my mind if I'm this man? If I'm this guy, I'm probably thinking, uh, okay, that's not really what I was looking for, but I guess I'll take it. Let me tell you, it's not what anybody was looking for. And this is where I think we unlock the heart of this miraculous story. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiving you, What he is saying to this guy is, Son, you have far deeper issues, far deeper problems than paralysis. And the deeper issue here in your life is sin. As one author put it, There is more than one kind of paralysis. There is the paralysis of the body caused by disease. And there is also paralysis of the soul caused by sin. So this man, if I can phrase it this way, was sicker than he knew. And he had a much deeper need than physical healing. And that's why Jesus' greatest concern for him was giving this man's forgiveness of sin. So what does this mean for us? What what do we take away from what we've just seen now in this story? What, What do we take away, what do we learn for? from this for us today. Well, here are three truths or implications for us today. Notice them in your notes coming up on the screen. First of all, Jesus' authority penetrates to the root of all suffering, which is sin. The rabbi said it this way, no sick man is healed until his sins are forgiven. Why? Because all suffering is ultimately rooted in sin. Now, Let me say this at the same time, it's not that this man was especially sinful or more sinful than any other human being. He wasn't. But what he does for us is he kind of stands as as an object lesson, if you will, to teach us the truth that disease and death, that sickness and suffering are simply the consequences of sin. Think about it with me. If there were no sin in the world, there would be no sickness in the world. If there were no disobedience in the world, there would be no death in this world. And that thought, that truth, takes us all the way back to the beginning of Matthew 8 when we talked about the healing grace of Jesus Christ. If you remember in that message, we learned how all suffering, no matter what form it takes, is a product of sin in our world. We talked about in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that there's no suffering. It's, it's paradise in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And there's no suffering there. And then when you come to Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Sin enters the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And as a result of that sin or disobedience, we have all kinds of suffering now in our world after that and now what we come to here in Matthew 9 Jesus makes it crystal clear that his authority penetrates to the root of all this suffering which is sin itself think with me on this all suffering All our physical struggles, all our physical suffering, all our physical pain, in addition to emotional and spiritual struggles, they all go back to the fact that we have sinned and we are separated from our Creator. All suffering goes back either to sin in our own personal lives or sin in this world. That means some suffering in our lives. Yes, it is due to specific sin in our lives. For example, when we disobey God, when we flirt with sin in our lives, and when we live our own lives apart from God and make decisions apart from His Word and the truth of His Word, listen, we will suffer the consequences of our sin. There are some people who are suffering right now because of sin in their lives. And the good news is that Jesus came to deal with that sin. And he has authority over that sin that's at the root. And Jesus wants to use even suffering in our lives to pull us away from that sin so that we hate it all the more and we run all the faster from it and we run to Jesus and we run to the cross and we run to his forgiveness for that sin. And so all suffering goes back either to sin in our personal lives or sin in this world, and in sin in this world, this would be like Job-like suffering, if you remember the story of Job and his suffering. So sometimes we suffer not due to some specific sin in our lives, but simply due to the fact that we now live in a fallen, sinful world. And the point of this story here now in Matthew 9 is that no matter what kind of suffering we experience, listen to me, this is the good news, Jesus is dealing with the root of it all. Why? Because you cannot deal with disease, you can't deal with disaster, you cannot deal with demons without dealing with sin. And so Jesus goes to the root of all suffering, when he surprisingly says to the paralytic, Now your sins are forgiven you. Which leads us to the second truth. Our ultimate need is never physical, it's always spiritual. Sometimes we think our ultimate need is physical, that's normal as human beings. But folks, may I remind you, it is always, always spiritual. No matter what type of suffering we are experiencing. Romans 3, 23 is still true. All have what? Sin. And we come short of the glory of God. All of us have the same problem. And all of us have the same need. We need what Jesus gave this man on the mat. We need to have our sins forgiven first and foremost. That's far more important than physical healing because without forgiveness, healing doesn't really matter, does it? It just touches the body, but it doesn't touch our souls, which lives forever. Now, understanding this truth then brings us to the good news of the kingdom that Jesus came here for. Notice at number three, the good news of the kingdom is not that Jesus will heal You of all your sicknesses, but that Jesus will forgive you of all your sins. The good news of the kingdom is ultimately not that Jesus will heal you of all your sicknesses. Listen, folks, that's not the good news of the kingdom. Now, please understand what I am not saying, though. Listen, I'm not saying that God, in his graciousness, does not sometimes do that. Sometimes God does heal us of our diseases. And you know what? That is good. Perhaps you or someone in your family, perhaps even a friend, has been miraculously healed of a major sickness. Man, if that's you or you know a family member or a friend that that's been the case, you know what we do? We give God glory for that, do we not? We give thanks to God. We praise Him for being our divine healer of our physical maladies and diseases and sicknesses. In fact, you go to James chapter 5, and it even tells us to pray for that. To gather around one who is sick. To lay hands on them and to pray for God's healing grace on their body. It is right to pray for that. And if God chooses to heal in this way, folks, it is good. But at the same time, that is not the good news of the kingdom. That Jesus will heal you of all your sicknesses, at least, catch this, in this lifetime. Oh, there's coming a day. When that is part of the kingdom. When there will be no more sicknesses, there will be no more disease, there will be no more death. But now, at this moment, we do not preach, we do not share a gospel that says, trust in Christ for your salvation and all your cancer will be gone. That's simply not true. The good news of the kingdom is not that Jesus will heal all of your sicknesses, but that Jesus will forgive you of all your sins. And that's what we need most. For example, even in my own life, more than I needed the gist cancer in my stomach to be removed, I needed the sin in my heart to be forgiven. Why? Because that's my deepest and greatest need in life when sin is forgiven then we are reconciled to a holy god and the root of our sin is severed and we know that at that moment that cancer and tumors and whatever struggles we have in this world they are temporary i love what paul says in 2 corinthians four sixteen. though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day And are we not reminded of this daily in our world, daily in our lives even? (coughs) This reality is staring our family in particular right in the face. And specifically, it's staring my wife in her face and her two sisters with their mother, who is now at home under hospice care. And if you know anything about hospice care... You're basically in preparation to die. And as you look at her in the basement there in a hospital bed, you see and you realize vividly, visually in front of you that her outer body is wasting away. Her colon has shut down. And there's nothing more medical science can really do for her. And yet, we also understand as Christ followers that the inner body is being renewed and that this is just preparation for eternal life where she will live forever and ever without any of these diseases and sicknesses. And so while my wife and her sisters grieve the loss of the outer body perishing, We also take hope that it's momentary, it's temporary, and we praise God that he has come to sever the root of all that, which is sin, because without that we would have no hope in the next life, in the eternal life. So what we're seeing here in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 over and over again is Jesus' deity as the Son of God, as the Son of Man on display for us. There's only one who can calm the wind and the waves, and that's God. There's only one who can forgive sins, and that's God. And so the picture we're getting here is the picture I hope that God is opening up to your hearts this morning is that Jesus is God. And that's why the scribes and the Pharisees go nuts right now. Man, they are itching in their pants. They're squirming in this house. And they are going nuts. When Jesus says to this paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And this brings us to the scandal in the story where Jesus is accused of blaspheming. At this point in the story, the focus shifts from the man on the mat to the scribes on the edge. Matthew tells us in verse 3, look at it, and at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Now, their reasoning is rather clear. First of all, they know, they knew, only God can forgive sins. Number two, In their reasoning, this man is claiming to do what only God can do. And so number three, obviously that means this man is a blasphemer because he is claiming to do what only God can do. I might add that blaspheming was the most serious sin a Jew could commit. It was the sin of basically defiling God's name. And in Jesus' day, it was a capital sin, a capital offense. And that's why these scribes are going nuts In fact, why why did the scribes here accuse Jesus of blasphemy? Because the crowd certainly wasn't. Why were the scribes? Well, let me give you the answer here. The scribes failed to see that Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Now, please note, the scribes understood exactly what Jesus was saying when he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You've got to give them credit for that. It's true that only God can forgive sins, folks. And it's also true that Jesus had forgiven this man's sin. And so when the scribes heard that, they said to themselves, Who does he think he is, God? Yes. Yes. That's the whole point of this story. Jesus is claiming, and Jesus is now showing us that he's God, and that he has authority to forgive sin. But the scribes failed to see it, or rather, they refused to see it. They refused to see this glorious truth who was standing right there in front of them. You see, the scribes' problem at this moment is is they had put Jesus in a box, in their box was way too small. Jesus was much bigger than their box. These scribes are the classic example of the perpetually closed mind. They're analytical, they're informed, they're well-read, but they have no category big enough for Jesus. And so they did what most closed-minded people do today, even in our culture, in our world, and that is they tried to discredit Jesus as the Son of God, instead of simply worshiping Jesus as the one who has authority to rule in this world. But Jesus isn't about to let them off the hook so easily. And so he gives everyone now a sign that they can't possibly miss to prove his deity. Notice number four, the sign. Jesus heals the paralytic. Jesus knows what the scribes are thinking, And so he presses the issue with them. Look what Jesus says to them in verses 4 and 5. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? So what do you think? Which is easier? It's certainly easier to say something that can't be physically and immediately verified. I mean, if I told you I could beat Zach in golf, what could we do? We could go after church today, we could go down to Shoal Creek Golf Course, and Zach, you and I could play a round of 18. Sounds like a pretty good idea. And what we would learn after 18 holes of golf is that both of us stink at golf. (laughs) That we're just a bunch of hackers having fun out there is what we would learn. But hey, why not, Zach? So on one hand, folks, listen, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven you since there's no visible way to prove it. In other words, you can say it all you want since nobody can look into the heart and actually see forgiveness. But on the other hand, it's much harder to say, rise up and walk. Why? Because now there's visible proof for everyone to see. And so Jesus is proposing a test of sorts. He's offering the scribes indisputable proof of who he really is. And this is where our story comes to a climax. Look what Jesus says now verses 6 and 7. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now, what happens next in this story? Get this. Is one of the most amazing demonstrations of Jesus' authority until his resurrection. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And so complete is this man's healing that the man literally picked up his bed. And you know what he did? He walked out of the house. I can just imagine the people in awe and shock, and they're just kind of parting the way. And they're just kind of looking going, whoa, blow me away. Now, don't miss what Jesus said first. Go back and look at it. Verse 6, that you may what? Know. That you may know. That's the key to this whole story. Let me put it in one sentence. Jesus did this miracle arise, get up, and walk. He did this miracle they could see with their eyes so that they might know He had already done the other miracle they couldn't see with their eyes. And so the point has now been made Jesus has authority. He has authority to heal sickness and forgive sin. Why? Because He is the Son of God. Now, as we come to the end of this story, we come face to face with one of the most profound questions in the world. And that question is a question that every one of us here must answer. Who is this man who is this man notice how the crowds responded to what they saw in Matthew 9 verse 8 says now when the multitude saw it they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men in other words the people who had come that day entered into that crowded house to hear Jesus teach were utterly and totally flabbergasted they had never seen anything like this before Get this, they were scared to death and praising God all at the same time. Seems like a paradox. Fear, amazement, and joy grip their hearts and their minds. But folks, listen to me, that's what happens when you come face to face with the authority of Jesus. And for the first time, you begin to realize this man is the very Son of God that this man has authority not only to heal sicknesses, but, oh, he has authority to now forgive sins. Yes, it's true. The crowd in the house that day did not fully grasp, they did not fully understand who Jesus was, who this man was standing in front of them. They were glad God had given such power to men, but they did not realize yet that Jesus is the God-man. And yet we still find them doing what? Worshiping with fear and joy at the same time. That's what happens when you come face to face with this Jesus of the Bible and his authority. It grips your heart and your mind. You can't help but worship him in fear and joy. This fear is not a bad fear. It's not the fear we have looked at prior in Matthew 8. It's, the, it's a good fear. It's a, it's a reverential fear. It's a fearful respect. It's coming to the realization, perhaps for the first time in your life, of who Jesus really is now and who you are in relation to the one who created you and what Jesus can do for you. This is the fear and joy of knowing who Jesus is. In thanking God that he has opened up your heart and that you're now beginning to see it. So how would you answer this most profound question? Who is this man to me? Because folks, listen to me. When it's all said and done, when life is over on this earth, Jesus will either be to you personally your Savior, or He will be your judge. And so now is the time to answer this question. Today is the day to respond to Jesus as your Savior and receive His forgiveness for your sins. So please, don't miss this. Don't miss this essential, critical, life-changing truth. Notice it. Forgiveness of sin is God's greatest gift, because it meets our greatest need. You know, this is the central message of Christianity, of God's Word, that God will forgive your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, there is no greater news in all the world than that. Do you believe that? No greater news than the news that God will forgive your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I urge you, repent of your sin and trust in the one who has authority over that sin. And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus to forgive you of your sin, to wipe the slate clean in your heart, I urge you to do that at our response time. I urge you to to run to the cross and cry out to Jesus to be your Savior, your forgiver, and the Lord of your life. And if you have, which I know many of you have here this morning, then I urge you to proclaim that as the good news of the kingdom for those who still need Jesus and His forgiveness that He offers. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we thank you once again for your demonstration of power and authority. We thank you once again for showing us who you are, revealing it to us through these miraculous stories that you have preserved for us in the Gospel of Matthew. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to see with spiritual eyes that you are the Son of God, and you have authority to forgive our sin even today. Lord, that you would open up our minds to your truth about who we are as sinners, and that is our core issue, our core problem. And yet, in your grace, you have sent your Son to deal with that very issue. And so, Lord, help us in your grace to respond. And Lord, for those who have already responded, for those who know you as their Savior, may we once again just be grateful and thankful for the salvation that you have provided us. But Lord, to do more than that, that we would move beyond that, that we would see this is the good news of the gospel and share it, proclaim it, be burdened by it. And so even now in our response time, Lord, we ask that your spirit would move. That those who need to come to know you and receive your forgiveness would cry out to you. They would express their heart to you in prayer. And the rest of us, we would perhaps just say thank you. And we would pray for one that we know who doesn't yet know you. Lord, for all these things, we ask in your son's name, amen. Zach's going to sing. And as he does, this is your time to respond to the Word of God.